you know, I'm probably not a normal sort of person, I, you know. I've sort of made myself into the kind of writer and journalist that I want to be anyway, so... But early Ponting, especially when he became a captain, he was always f***ing They can't... Not everyone needs to be Kumar Sangakara and Miss Bolalak. We need some dicks. Pad up. It's the Australian Cricket Podcast. And here are your hosts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Australian Cricket Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Mensel, a.k.a. Menas, and this is the final portion of the Autumn Series for 2017. Joining me this week is cricket journalist Jared Kimber. Jared started his cricket writing career with his own blog, Cricket With Balls, and now works for Crick Info. Jared also produced and released the film Death of a Gentleman that was concerned with the way cricket was governed by the ICC. In this interview, we talk about the way in which cricket media works and Jared's recent experiences of Australia's tour of India and a lot more. So enjoy this interview with Jared Kimber and I'll be back next week talking to Gav Joshi in India. Hi, Jared. Welcome to the Australian Cricket Podcast. Thanks for joining me. How are you? Not bad at all. Thanks for having me. Welcome to the Autumn Series. Normally what I do is every time the IPL's on, gives me a good chance to take a break from the normal format and call very interesting cricket people all around the world. And you certainly fit that category, so I'm really glad you could spend the time with the listeners. Tell me, do you pay much attention to the IPL? Um, a little bit. Uh, I now have two children, and so the IPL is on an awkward time because generally they need to be fed um, sometime during uh, the, the second innings. So depending on what my work schedule is, I might watch a little bit of the first innings. I don't always see the end of the game, um, although I have been doing some commentary for TalkSport too. But it, it's it's... Quite a good one for a um, for a cricket writer who still is at home um, at this time of the year because you could just put the TV on and, and have it on in the background. I do a similar thing with the, with the Big Bash when I'm not covering that as well. Um, those uh, and I, I I've done it with the Ram Slam and, and uh, you know any tournament that's in a good time zone that you're doing work and then behind you you can have cricket on. Usually that works quite well for me. Yeah, I love have, having cricket on all the time like you. With the IPL, normally, or the last few years, I haven't really paid much attention to it, but when I was covering some of the big bash games and talking to some of the players, they were so enthusiastic about it and saying that it is a real test of their game and there's varying conditions and there's so much excitement surrounding the tournament that I thought this year I would buy the online pass and watch some games. And I've been... Pleasantly surprised. They've been quite enjoyable. But what I find frustrating is that it's the only time I get to see Australia's best stars playing T20 cricket. Normally Smith and Warner and the rest aren't available for the Big Bash, which I think they need to look at. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously something we've thought about. The the, the problem is that Cricket Australia are not a very progressive board, um, which is why the Big Bash League took so long to make in the first place. And, you know, they, they had two choices my, my the choice that I probably suggested at the time and still think could work is probably late January into early March, um, and basically there's no uh, football codes on in Australia at that time, and you can completely dominate the um, the TV coverage. Now the football codes might still get a bit more press, but to be honest, the Big Bash doesn't get that much um, news articles written on it as it is. But what they would get is everyone in the country watching cricket in February into early March, which doesn't really happen at the moment. 
So I certainly think that's what they should have done, and that way they could have got the top international players. But I understand why they didn't want to do that. They wanted to cash in on the summer, and they also wanted to, you know, um, make it as child friendly as they could. Although the funny thing about that is, if I when I first started going to Big Bash games, they were at about five o'clock or six o'clock, so kids could come, and they're now at seven thirty, so that they're in a good market for TV. So they're not as kid friendly as they were anyway. But yeah, I mean, realistically. One something's going to have to give one way or another because eventually they're going to have to get their biggest stars into the biggest league. I, I mean, if they want it to be as massive as they do want it to be. Yeah, I think uh, I would play the Big Bash at the time they played at the moment, but I would push back any Australian one-day international fixtures into February and March and then have the Australian stars available sort of for the second half of the Big Bash leading up to the final. I think that would be a sort of good compromise. Yeah, I think the only reason they don't want to do that is that, that they don't trust that one days would be able to bring crowds in in February and March once once the Big Bash and the tests are over. So that's the thing about the Big Bash is it's actually at this stage a far better product and far more reliable than one day is. Even though one day is, I think, still rate higher than uh, – than the Big Bash when it comes to actually knowing that people are going to tune in just because you can't have a one day. The great thing about the Big Bash is you can basically almost have a game every night and and, then, and, and that's why that's how it's set up. And so it's got this sort of recurring TV um, fan base about it um, and then you've got the event nature of the, the fact that home teams only have four games um, at the moment. So it's quite a big thing to have a, have a home game for this. So I think they're worried about if they move the one days to February, March, that that won't work. So and look, they've got to they've got to do something eventually because it doesn't really make sense. The the IPL and and even the CPL make a lot more sense in the fact that they are you know their best players are going to be playing in that tournament. Yeah, I think that's the big difference now in the standard of the Big Bash and the IPL. The fact that the Big Bash doesn't have that elite group of Australian players and from around the world, whereas the IPL does. All right, Jared, I wanted to get you on the show because I've heard you on many podcasts. I've read your blog. I've read some of your books. And my impression of you is, is as a cricket journalist is as someone who approaches the game a bit differently. You come at things from different angles and different perspectives. And the first time I met you at a Big Bash game, you were putting together your own stats for a fielding metric. So it sort of lived up. You lived up to the billing straight away that you were coming at the game differently to all the other journos there. I want to ask you where that sort of mindset came from and how you came to form your ideas of the way you approach the game. Um, it wasn't even a fielding metric. I think that was um, a mistake metric. I was, I was trying to work out how unforced errors um, changed the flow of a of a T Twenty game, which is not not better than a fielding metric. To be fair, it's more, more bizarre, probably. Um, <laughs> a fielding mistake metric. Yeah, um, I, I don't. I don't know. I suppose I just. I, I am quite different to most group writers in that. Um, I didn't really, I'm not a journalist, so most cricket writers are journalists, and the rest of them are probably former players, and so straight away I'm not trained as a journalist, I've never really worked for a newspaper a day in my life, other than a couple of freelance pieces occasionally, but I've never written um, for an Australian newspaper, and I've only written uh, one or two pieces for English newspapers. In fact, I've done, I think I've done most of my work for Pakistani newspapers, so I, you know, straight away that that completely separates me from from the system, I suppose, um, because I not I'm not doing what everyone else does. Uh, you know, I've not I've not been trained to think the way that other people do. And then I suppose on top of that, when you start as a blogger the way that I did, how old were you when you started the blog? 
I was 27 when I started the blog. So when you when you do that, I mean, the idea was to basically write about cricket the way that me and my mates talked about it. And that isn't the way that normal people cover things either. And so I suppose I've tried to keep a little bit of that is if I talk to people and people are saying the same thing over and over again, I mean, if you look at the film Death of a Gentleman, that came out of basically a conversation of everyone was saying that Test Cricket is dying. So, you know, me and Sam went, well, is it? Is Test Cricket dying? We'll go off and make the film. And, you know, a lot of the, the analytic sort of pieces that I write now, it's a similar sort of thing. It's, you know, you, you know the, the Yorker piece I wrote recently for Crick Info, it's like everyone says, why, why don't bowlers just bowl more Yorkers? Okay, I'm going to look into that. And I suppose that's a different way of, of covering cricket in general than, than what most people do, which is follow the, follow the bigger stories or um, write match reports and those sorts of things. I, you know, I suppose it partly comes from that. And also, I, you know, I'm probably not a normal sort of person. I, you know, <laughs> um, I, I don't want, you know, I, I, I don't really watch normal TV. I, you know, don't listen to pop music. A lot of things that are different about me. So I'm interested in far more out there things to begin with. And so I suppose that sort of comes through it. And I, I suppose the reason I write differently is just because I'm not a cricket writer by trade. Realistically, I, I'm a screenwriter by trade. So I probably just see things a little bit differently than other people do. And then I'm interested by things that other people aren't interested in. So is that what you were doing sort of after school or university? You you were trying to be a screenwriter and then you've transferred the skills across to cricket? Oh, there's no after school in university. I was kicked out of school in year 12, started year 12. What for, playing too much cricket? Uh, it, it was certainly a part of it. There's no doubt about that. Um, though I don't think that was... That was the ultimate one. Although for, for a good part of year 10 and 11, I would turn up only at lunchtime to play cricket and, and basketball in the winter. Um, <laughs> Sounds perfect. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, so I didn't finish high school, so I didn't go on to university. Um, I didn't actually go, didn't study at university until I was 26 and I went to film school. So, no, I worked in call centres and factories and I travelled a little bit when I could. Um, I went to the 2003 World Cup, I backpacked around that. What a journey. Uh, yeah, just travelled around. So I wasn't trying to be anything for a long time. I was mostly just working for Qantas in a call centre. And then when I got to 26, I actually got a promotion. And I was trying to work out if that's what I wanted to do for the rest of my life and realised that even with the promotion, I didn't really enjoy it. And so I um, went to film school because that's what I wanted to do. So I really only tried to become a filmmaker for best part of two years the first time and uh it just happened to be that so when, when we had this filmmaking company we would get a job and then we wouldn't get any work for a little while and so uh, we just decided to try and come up with other things that would you know keep us going and keep our minds active maybe hopefully make some money and uh cricket with balls was one of those it was it was a fluke really it was you know, one mate suggesting I, I i do it and another mate who was running a basketball blog was like why don't you write a cricket blog if he hadn't have said that i probably would have blogged about something else it was just that those two things sort of fell together and i'd occasionally have a week or two where there wasn't much to do so just sort of did it that way that's a what an interesting way to find yourself as being now i guess a cricket journalist you say you weren't trained as a journalist but i guess now you are one you're qualified by your job yeah well journalism is one of those weird jobs isn't it that you're not you know it's not not like i mean i think journalism courses are probably more a fad a new fad because in the old days papers had cadetships and so there's no actual way to qualify to be a journalist there's only a few solid things that you need to know realistically you need to understand the libel laws i'm still coming to grips with them yeah 
Yeah, well, that's something that I kind of knew because of through filmmaking. As a documentary filmmaker, you kind of have to learn that. Uh, you know, another another key thing that you learn, you know, at, at journalism school is shorthand. So I, I don't do shorthand, but I, my career is uh, overlapped with um, smartphones. So I've, I've been pretty lucky there. And realistically, a lot of the rest of it is learning on the job. Uh, and real, and I because I'm... I've sort of made myself into the kind of writer and journalist that I want to be anyway. So it's not as if I needed that. It's not as if pre-existing training would have helped as much for me. And I, I tend to learn things better as I do them. So realistically, I just sort of got in there. And, you know, I, I remember the first news story I ever wrote for Crick Info. George Dobell and Sandra Ball were helping me with it. And I like... I. I sent it to them, emailed it to them, and then walked over the, the other side of the press box because um, I was still only part-time, so Crick Info was separated at, at that time from me. And I had to walk over the other side of the press box and show, you know, and say, what do you guys think? And they both sort of looked at me and went, yeah, you know, if you write a news story, you really have to lead with the news in the first paragraph. So, you know, that was only a few years ago, and I was still learning basics like that. Um, but realistically, you know, when it comes to long-form um, news or interviewing, those sorts of things I learned through the blog and um, through filmmaking. So um, there are other ways of doing it. So you don't, you know, a journalist is one of those great jobs that you can basically just uh, learn the skills of and become one um, separately if, if you're lucky. In what ways do you think that the cricket media has changed in the last 10 years since you've been doing the blog? I mean, I think now you have a lot more varied opinions and you have sort of with social media and people are able to give their opinions and you don't necessarily have to be an ex-player to give a valid opinion. People are more used to hearing opinions from a wider variety of sources. Yeah, it goes both ways. There's more ex-players commentating than ever before and the, the role of the sort of harsher Beauglade, Tony Kosia, even Mark Nicholas, I suppose, if you, in some ways uh, he's less of a, a former player, and I suppose Tony Kosia as well. The role of sort of former player commentating is is sort of completely taken over the game. I think the ICC have just put out their Champions Trophy list and there isn't one person who's a broadcaster. And did I see there's not one female in that lineup, which I there's find There's not one female. We, astounding. We the, well, we haven't seen what the Women's World Cup commentators will be. If, they, if that's all females as well, then that'll be interesting. But I bet it won't be. I mean, there's so many great female commentators. I can't believe that in a, a showpiece event like the Champions Trophy, they wouldn't have a couple in there. Well, I, the only reason I would think is that they don't, you know, they want to spread it out to as many people as possible um, and that they want to use all the women for the Women's World Cup. But yeah, I mean, we're in an age where that's just bizarre anyway. But but yeah, so you've got all these ex-players there. And then on the other side of it, you've got, as you said, the sort of the democratisation of, of sports writing in general. It's not... Certainly not a cricket thing. Um, it's right across the board uh, now, and you've got sort of key Twitter personalities, and then you've got you know sort of uh, key bloggers and key columnists who've all sort of come through this sort of alternative way. And the reason that generally they're, they're getting attention is either they're um, they they they're writing trying to write controversial stuff to get attention, or they're saying the sort of things that the mainstream media haven't written. I mean, if or haven't done. I mean, if you look at uh, you know, I, I made my career basically standing out the, the outside grounds or sometimes inside grounds with a camera on me at the end of play, making a short video series. And when we were doing it, the journalists were basically saying it wasn't a real job and that we shouldn't be getting press accreditation to do this. Within a year, everyone was doing it. When I first started, everyone was saying 
uh, everyone within the press box, the older sort of conservative core, were going, oh, he's just a blogger. You know, within a couple of years, they were being asked to blog. And, and so there's sort of this sort of crossover of, of the way that all these different things have gone now. And there are more voices. And there, I think there are more publications as well. There are more places you can write for um, when it comes to cricket. And all these sort, all of these things are really um, helping out. We're a long way from it being a utopian society. I remember Andy Ball wrote an article about three or four years ago asking if we're in the golden age of cricket writing. I don't think we're there yet, but there are some really good signs. I think that that people are, um, you know, cricket just for whatever reason it brings about. I think maybe the time that the game takes to unfold, it brings about the sort of the ability to really think about it in a different way than say a boxing match does where a boxing match, almost everything happens in a few seconds, you know, basketball and football and these sorts of sports, it's two or three hours. There is something about cricket that sort of goes for such a longer period of time. And even, even if you look at the, you know, the T20 leagues, they, they still have um, some, some better writing. So the more people writing about it, you would assume the better, you know, the, the, the more amazing content that we should be able to get. And, and not just writing, you've got podcasts and you've got, you know, video series and, and all sorts you of... You definitely have podcasts. Yeah. And so it's changed from when I started, but it's, it, it's just, it's still not where I would like it to be. I still think career writing's a little bit dumb and could certainly be done better. And uh, I think the, over, you know, the, if, you've, if your main writer at the ground is still doing a match report... Um, I think you, you're basically doing cricket writing wrong as a publication, and I think that's still a, a big thing. Uh, I think match reports are very, very old school. I think I think it's ESPN or that's certainly a big company in America who's tried to do match reports uh, with an algorithm. Um, and realistically, <laughs> I think humans have been doing that for a long time. There are some brilliant match report writers, but it's, match report is about the last thing I will read. I'd rather read about the actual stories that happened in the game and not what happened chronologically. I mean, I spoke to one of your associates at the Big Bash, Will McPherson. He was saying that despite that, Quick Info gets a lot of hits on their match report. So I think some people are reading them, but not, you know, they're just if you've missed the game and you want to find out what happened, I think. Well, the reason it happens at Quick Info is because we still feature it as our main article, which I think is a mistake because it, it's... It's not done by, generally not done by someone on the ground. It's usually done by someone back in an office and, you know, they're just going through it. So I think at Crick Info, whichever article is at the top of a cluster uh, will generally be the most read piece. And so me and Will have had a lot of discussions about this. I don't think we should be doing proper match reports for um, big bash games because I don't think people really care about the result the day after uh, the way that they do. You know, a test match is different uh, because there's a building narrative but realistically, if I if I want to know what happened in a T20 game or a one-day game, I don't want to know what happened in the game. I want to know what was important from the game. And that could be one particular story or one particular narrative or one moment. And I, I honestly think that that, I mean, I, I've kind of built a, game, built a career. I never really did match reports when I was a blogger. And I still don't really do them now. I, I just, and I, I think that things will move on uh, because I, I just, everyone writes a match report. You, you, that's the frustration. I've talked to the I've talked to cricket boards about this, about like even suggesting to to uh, publications to to look at different ways of doing this. If if everyone writes a match report and there's one in the Sun, the Guardian, the Telegraph, the Times, wherever, you only need to read one of those. If everyone writes about the actual stories and the narrative and a big moment or you know the historical importance of something that's just happened, 
you know, the chances are that the guy from the Telegraph and the guy from the Sun are going to write two different pieces, and the guy from the Daily Mail and the guy from the Guardian are going to write two different pieces. And that's the way that the new world works. The old world was you buy one newspaper and you read it. The new world is I'm not going to write, I'm not going to read more than one match report from one publication. I am going to write, if someone has written an incredible story about Johnny Bairstow on that day, and someone else has written about Stephen Finn, someone else has written about Eunice Khan, someone else has written about the history of Pakistan cricket, they're four individual pieces that I'm more likely to read. So if I was a cricket board, that's what I would be, uh, that's what I would be trying to do. There's, and you know, part of the problem with current cricket broadcasting or publishing is that essentially at the end of the day's play, you've got one match report and one quotes piece and you only need to read it from one source. And you basically, you know, you might get a slightly different view from the Guardian than the, from the, from the Daily Mirror, but you're basically getting the same thing, which is so and so said this and this is what happened in the game. I, I just think <laughs> you're much better off. You know, if, if I follow the NBA, I, I don't look for the match reports. Um, what I look for is, you know, someone writing about what Steph Curry did in this game, what Clay Thompson did in this game, you know, what, uh, you know, the way that the game went together, uh, you know, what, what the statistical analysis was, what the narrative was, anything like that. And I think you're limiting yourself with what, what we have now, which is 15 fairly similar match reports written in different quality. And they date very quickly. I mean, when when you write a piece about the Yorkers that you spoke about before, that piece then has a lot longer life because it retains some value. Whereas a match report, even if it's you know referencing Yorkers, is in a couple of weeks, no one's going to read about it. Yeah, and that, I think that's part of the problem in general as well. Like, uh, so I think that there's certainly there's no. I think there should be specialist match reporters, and they should go on. But I just think that you need to be smart and and think about the way that you're covering this. And I don't think that's the way that. Cricket is covered. Um, I don't think it's the way that sport is covered really outside of America um, so much um, at the moment. It seems that actually, actually, there's some some decent stuff going on in 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 Europe as well. But um, certainly, a lot of sport coverage is still it's access journalism. So no one ever asks the big questions properly. It, it's a match report of whatever you know, whatever kind of sport it is, and then it's a quotes piece of a person who's just done something. How do you feel? How did you feel doing that thing? How do you feel now thinking about do you think just done that thing? journos in Australia at the moment are a bit too easy on Cricket Australia and the players and the coach? You know, when you go into the press conferences, as you say, no one's really going hard at anybody. You know, it's all fairly civil. Do you think there is an element of that that needs to come into the game? More questioning? Um, the press, I would, I would abandon the press conference. I think the press conference is part of the problem. So essentially what it is, is that the players are briefed over what, what they think the press is going to ask by, by the media manager. The player then walks out, he's got a bunch of lights in his face, he's got some cameras in his face, and then he's got a bunch of people he sort of knows asking him questions. He's already on the defensive, which means he won't ask many good questions, which is part of the reason why the journalists don't go deep. Because when they do ask a bigger question in a press conference, it, it quite often ends up quite, you, you don't get, it, it almost ends the press conference. Because, you know, I, I've been at press conferences where players have been asked big questions. And that's it. They basically don't answer any questions after that. They just mumble or nod. Um, and which, for a journalist, that's the worst possible thing. Because they've got to fill, you know, they've got to fill 500, 400, 600 words in their newspaper um, and suddenly they've got a guy, you know, not talking at all. So I, the whole situation is wrong for me. I, I, I really think it should be, I, I think the actual, the way that they're set up, especially after the limited overs games and T20 games should be 
that you can just basically go and ask to talk to a player for five or ten minutes on your own and uh, find your own stories. That would also mean that instead of one player coming out at the end uh, of, of a game and, and one, one set of stories, if you know what I mean, from that press conference, you would have the ability to build a narrative if you're a decent writer. But even if you're not, the Daily Mail guy might go to you know the, the young player who's broken through. You know, and the Guardian might go to the older player who's um, struggling a bit with form, and the Sydney Morning Herald might go to the the West Indian player because that's the good story that day, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Those are the, the that's the way that we can open it up. And so, uh, realistically, the problem with cricket is that very few big questions are asked because we don't have a good situation in which to ask them. Our TV um, broadcast is basically hand in hand with all the cricket boards now, so they're not going to do it. So radio is really the last place. That's ABC and BBC probably ask far better questions than you, you know, tougher questions. You know, when Dave Richardson is interviewed properly or, you know, uh, James when, when someone from the ECB is interviewed properly, it's generally, or James Sutherland, yeah, exactly. It's generally by a radio station. And that's because they, they don't feel beholden to the cricket boards. And they also know that these people, you can't, you have to be. You have to do your time with the ABC or the BBC. <laughs> you know, there's a. You can't really. If 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 you were to not do those interviews, if you are a major cricketer or a, a cricket administrator, they're going to mention on radio that you won't do interviews with them anymore, and that's going to embarrass you and you can make you look like an idiot. So, unfortunately, radio is kind of the last place left. But I, as I said, I just think there are other ways of doing things, and I, I think probably you know, Crick Buzz and Crick Info and these sorts of places. They should probably get to the point where they start to do, you know, the same sort of interviews that ABC and BBC are doing. But they, you know, these are, these are newer things. But yeah, I mean, the, the funny thing is when a Crick Info journalist goes to press conferences, players don't like it because quite often we ask really nuanced cricket questions. Oh, fancy that! Fancy that at a cricket press conference. But that's not what they're asked. They're asked how they feel. Uh, what did so and so say out in the middle? You know, these sorts of things. How do you think you went today? Yeah, and and so you know, I remember a, a senior English player taking an, a Crick Info writer aside and just going, "I hate it when you come because I know if you put your hand up, you're going to ask a question that's not particularly easy to answer." Um, and it's also it's ridiculous. Like, let's imagine that um, you know something's happened in the game and a bowler has done something really interesting, and then the bats, uh, some random batsman comes out, or a fielding coach or a bowling coach comes out to talk, and you can't even ask the bowler who's done the thing why they've done it. It, it the whole system doesn't really make any sense. And if you look at the way that um, I think Rugby Union does it and a lot of the American sports, that kind of access where you can actually just go up to the guy and go, you did this, what was that about? And he's like, oh, I slipped. Done. End of story. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, in baseball, they just open up the dressing rooms and at the end of a baseball yeah, game, baseball, the med- basketball, media um, goes in and they that. go up to the locker and some of the players yeah. tell them to F off, I'm not talking to you. And, and I'll, you get a few words with some of the other players and that's how they write their stories. Yeah, it's a completely different way of doing it. And, you know, cricket is wedded to the, 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 the press conference. And I just, I think it's idiotic, to be honest. Um, and I think there's far better ways of doing it. But all these sorts of things and the access part of it is also a big part of it. You know, and this is right across sports, really. It's very hard to break these sorts of big stories if you are an accredited journalist in, within sport because you you need to get your accreditation. You know, when they tried to stop me from doing Death of a Gentleman, the first thing they did was take my accreditation away, and that affects my livelihood. And so I, you know, had to make a big decision, you know, at that sort of point. And realistically, most journalists are 
they want to keep their job. So that's the difference between a proper news hound journalist, of which in sport there are very, very few, probably the least amount of them in the sport, and what we have, which is, uh, you know, almost uh, just people who are, I don't know, uh, who are saying, this thing happened in front of me in this game, and this person said this about it, you know, which is m- most bits of journalism. As I said at the start, I'm not trained that way, so I probably naturally rebel against that sort of thing. Speaking of rebelling against authority, uh, you, you mentioned your film Death of a Gentleman, so it was released in 2015. Uh, for the listeners who haven't seen it, it's a documentary about the takeover of the governance of cricket by ICC's Big three. Congratulations on the film. I saw it. I really enjoyed it. But I thought that what was important about your film, Death of a Gentleman, was that it got the right people talking about the way cricket is governed. I don't think it would have happened without the film. It really did sort of create ripples. I don't don't know if it got a massive audience, but I think it got a small but very intelligent audience talking about the way the ICC was going and railing against it in the end. So you, are you, you must be very satisfied with the result of the film. Yeah. I mean, if we, if, I mean, realistically, there was a time where we thought we were going to make it for a, uh, make it and sell it for about five or $10,000 to someone like ESPN UK, who would just put it up at, you know, eight o'clock on a Wednesday night one time and forget about it. And so f- to go from that to what we ended up with, which was, you know, huge sellout shows in, in Australia, India, and England, and uh, net, the now worldwide Netflix deal, and going to uh, a couple of film festivals with it. It was always going to be a hard sell, uh, because essentially it is a film about cricket administration, but when you boil it down, it's really a, a, you know, about how um, the world runs, which is, you know, it's, it's about politics depressing. and power. It's yeah. um, it, well, it is depressing. Do you feel some sense of vindication now that the ICC have scrapped their plans to have the big three, that you were in, in some senses successful in your campaign? Do you know what? The thing I feel most proud about is that the fact that the Loader Commission watched the film and it was part of the reason that they went, this is not the way that we can run cricket anymore. We don't want to be the bad guys anymore. And we want to run cricket, you know, um, in a better, that's the governed way. And I think our film also took them back to the Wolf Report which is, you know, I mean, a cricket paid for this incredible document, which was, um, which of which the idea was to have better governance in cricket, and then, of course, uh, completely ignored it when it wasn't what they wanted to be said. Is the governance getting better? Uh, there, look, there've been some small signs um, that things are getting a little bit better. Uh, Shashank, when he came in, obviously, uh, is a different kind of person. Although he's already quit once, so I don't know how much he's got a history of quitting. Uh, I think they're trying to do some good things. I still think that they fundamentally don't get that the best thing that they could do for the game right at the moment is grow it internationally. So would you like to see the Olympics take on T20 cricket, that sort of thing? Personally, I'm an Olympics purist. I actually don't really like the, the, the all the different sports going into it. But having said that, all the other sports have gone into it. And there's a reason that golf is in the Olympics. It's because golf is trying to get new audiences because golf is struggling. Uh, cricket isn't struggling the same way that golf is because it, it hasn't had uh, because largely because of T20. So why not use that to build? Um, you know, I was in Hong Kong recently um, covering some cricket, and it's just like they're desperate for the Olympics. It would turn them from a minority sport in that country to a majority sport just because the amount of money that would be suddenly invested in it, but also the people would be more interested in it. 
Um, and Hong Kong is that times a hundred realistically, but also just, just on a, on a, on a small level, it's like, we, we need these, we need governments to buy into cricket. And at the moment, they, a lot of the governments don't. So in, in a country like the Netherlands, you know, they've got a really good team at the moment and they could be the next island in that they have a, a couple of decent bowlers and they have a really good core of, of batsmen and they could probably up, upset a few senior teams over the next couple of years. But. If they don't have actual support from their government and uh, the board, uh, the ICC itself, that'll just die away. And we've seen that with Kenya, and you know, and with Ireland, the opposite happened. The government really bought into cricket for whatever reason. The government thought this this is a good thing. Well, the governments, because um, there's a couple of different governments involved there, um, and then they got sponsors, and then we see what Ireland isn't a great team at the moment. One, once they finally get test status, they'll probably be as weak as they've been any time over the last five or ten years. But they will have finally got through and achieved it, and they have, you know, a first-class um, system and all these sorts of things. There's a lot of things that need to come come through, and the Olympics just sort of gives it an adrenaline jump. So, uh, realistically, I think that is that is a future um, for cricket. And I, I don't see personally for me, you play the World T20 every four years, which is how we like our global tournaments in cricket every four years, and then every two years you play the you play in the Olympics. That seems like a perfect situation. You're making a lot of money from one tournament, and from the other one, you're potentially, you know, bringing in every year a bunch of extra fans. And also, cricket being in the Olympics, the first few times, I just think we get so much press from um, international journalists who are just interested in, in one of the older sports finally coming across and, you know, taking the dip. I, you know, there's just so many good news stories that could come out of cricket being in the Olympics uh, that I think it's silly not to. Like, if, if cricket are in the if cricket is in the Olympics. How many people are going to cover Afghanistan to begin with? <laughs> you know, so there's just going to be so many good good parts of it. So, yeah, I, I think it is a good idea. I would do match reports at the Olympics or in Holland if asked. I think that would be interesting <laughs> assignments. All right, so you speaking of assignments, you were in India recently for the Australia v. India Test Series. Uh, did you enjoy it? Yeah, yeah, it was a, it was a really good series, I think. Because uh, I cover so many Test series, and you turn up, and the home team wins the first match, and it's sort of game over. The the best Test series I've seen either being you know a draw first up or uh, or an upset first up. So Australia South Africa uh, in thirteen fourteen, and when India beat India as uh, India beat England um, a few years ago, and when Sri Lanka actually beat um, England. So once that happens, especially in this case because it was so dramatic, and it was almost like the two teams flipped roles. That just opened up everything. And the fact that India just didn't steamroll Australia actually took them a long time. They had to fight in the second test. You know, the third test, both teams probably had their chances. And then, you know, it was a, it was a boring test um, in, in many ways because there weren't many wickets. But it was quite interesting because at any stage, a, a team could go on to win the series um, based on that. Uh, you, know, well, you know, a series of mistakes could have changed or one incredible performance. And then you had the last test, which, you know, but... A couple of innings there was was quite interesting as well. So yeah, no, I really enjoyed it. Do you think Australia missed a golden opportunity to at least draw the series? You know, some people say they punched above their weight, but if you look at their chances, they really should have come or could have come home with the Border Gavaskar Trophy. And in the end, they sort of dramatically fell away at times. Um, I think they played. To be honest, I think they played probably near the maximum of their ability. And, you know, I don't think they're the most talented team. And Bangalore is a, was a, potentially had they bowled better with a new ball in the, um, at, at the start of the, um, India second innings, 
Uh, it could have been a completely different situation. And they also dropped dropped a catch there. They're probably a bit unlucky at Ranchi. They probably had Shea Pajara out LBW early in his innings, but it was too close to call. Um, and the umpire, you know, probably missed a trick and didn't realize the ball brushed the pad before it had hit the bat. Really, you know, had they bowled better at the start of Bangalore and had that LBW gone their way, they probably could have won the series. Yeah, but realistically, those things didn't go their way. They were always going to have one, you know, if you take Mitchell Stark into a bowling attack, uh, there's always going to be a chance that he's going to be wayward on one particular day. Uh, it just happened to be perhaps the wrong day for them, and Hazelwood didn't bowl particularly well either, and India got away from him a little bit in, in that game. I, I think they played pretty well. Yeah, what what did you think of the whole Smith-Coley dynamic that happened throughout the series and then ended with Coley saying he wasn't friends with the Australians anymore? What, what did you make of that? It seemed that Coley was really upset at the end when he perhaps should have tried to sort of mend the wounds and you know, now that after the series had been completed. Um, I think he just runs hot, Coley, doesn't he? Um, I wrote a piece during the season that he's a bit like Ponting. Very similar sort of person. He takes things, you know, he's got his own moral code, which is absolute and, and it's fiery and it's got a lot of passion in it. And anyone who doesn't agree with him, who thinks is a dick. I mean, he's one of the most Australian <laughs> men I've ever come across, honestly. He's so Australian. Yeah. He's, I, you know, I've got hundreds of, you know, well, I've got, Quite a few Indian friends. I know hundreds of Indian men, roughly the same age, of Virat Kohli, and he's far more like the Aussies I grew up with than any Indian. And you know, suddenly, you know, you you've crossed the line, and that's basically what he was saying. He he wasn't using the same language that an Australian cricketer would have used, but that's what he. Oh, they, they crossed the line this series. It's just it's all bullshit, obviously. And there's a very good reason that the Australians don't like Kohli. I think Ed Cowan did another podcast, maybe for Fox Sports, and talked about it. So obviously, it's comment about Ed's mother. Um, and that sort of started the whole Coley versus Australia thing. And so they do go hard at Coley and they go harder at him than anyone else. And weirdly, people will say it was successful this time. It certainly wasn't successful last time um, India was in Australia. So I don't know if, you know, they just bowled better to him this time or whether he just went through a bit of a, a slump himself. But he's, you know, he's an arrogant, aggressive guy who believes that, he, you know, he almost believes that this is to his sort of God-given right to be this person. Um, and you're either with him or against him. There's no middle ground. And I think that was his way at the end of the press conferences going, you know, Glenn, uh, I think his friends were Mitchell Stark and Glenn Maxwell from that team, if I remember correctly. Um, and I think at the end of the press conference was his way of saying, um, uh, they're not with me anymore. And look, it was probably a bit of a dick move, but he's a bit of a dick. He's a bit of a silk. Yeah, but so was Ponting. Ponting f- I think we've forgotten because Grandpa Ponting is awesome. But early Ponting, especially when he became a captain, he was always complaining. He complained about almost every press corps in the world, including Australia's regularly. He would complain about opposition captains. He would complain about opposition tactics. All he did was complain, and he was always angry at press conferences. So for me, it's just... Maybe because Michael Clark was uh, a little bit different than that and Steve Smith's been a little bit different than that. But it's not that far back that we have to... Well, they get more media training now. They get a lot more... Me- when Ponting came up in the early 90s, it, there was no media training. You were just hung out to dry half the time. I just think he's a different sort of person as well. I think for all the talk about media training, uh, Vera Coley's probably had a lifetime of media training um, at this point. He's probably got more media manager. He, he probably has a... A PR company that works for him, and and I know Michael Clark did. Um, I don't know if you know if, if all captains do, but I'd be shocked if, if 
Pop Coley didn't have someone like that. So he's had media training. To be honest, he's just that sort of guy. You're going to, you know, you're going to get some good things from him. You're going to get some shit things from him. He's certainly better at press, press conferences than his predecessor. God, Barrett, uh, MS Donnie was the most boring on the planet when he spoke at a press conference. At least Barrett Coley has some passion. There's certainly stuff to write about when Coley enters a press yeah. conference. Yeah, and some of it's nonsense as well. But um, he quite often answers cricket questions quite well compared to other people as well because his he's blood is boiling. So he, instead of giving the normal bland, it's about processes, he will occasionally veer off and give an actual answer uh, by accident, probably. Yeah, I think, <laughs> look, even if he is, even if he becomes a great villain, I always thought Ponting was a great villain for the rest of the career world. So if Coley becomes a great villain for cricket, I think that's great. Now, enough of this Graham Smith trying to pretend to be everyone's friend and Kane Williamson being the guy you want to date your sister. You know, we need a few dicks involved. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, Joe Root it could be a perfect example. I've seen Joe Root sled tail enders before. That's a that's a promising sign for another potential great villain in cricket. We, they can't, not everyone needs to be Kumar Sangakara and Miss Hark. We need some dicks. I agree. I agree. I, I think Coley's certainly one of those. Maybe Root's going to be. Look, you've just, you've said maybe Root's going to be the next dick that's a captain of a country. So why not? I, I actually thought Smith might be one. I actually thought there were signs of Smith that he might be more like Alan Border than maybe any other modern captain we've had. But he just seems like he, uh, well, I suppose we've seen it with the, you know, yelling cheat at the top of your voice and then once he gets in front of a mic, he, you know, he's just uh, willing to pull back a little bit, which is disappointing, um, realistically. You know, guys like Ganguly and Steve Waugh, uh, for all their faults, were actually, you know, and Ranatunga, we were, all, were brilliant for the game because people kept talking about, you know, the game as much as possible. Yeah, I think Smith is still obviously coming to grips with his role as Aussie captain. And I think the way he sort of just talks to the media is an element of that because I don't think he realises that he's like the most powerful man in Australian cricket at the moment. He can just walk in and dominate the room if he wants. He can say what he likes, but instead he's a bit passive. Um, so I think as he matures, we'll see more of that. Yeah, it's also, I think it's probably the, that sort of side of him. I don't, I, we have a lot of friends in common. I don't know him really, but I've been out in social situations that he's been out in. He's not a big alpha guy. And he doesn't have the same kind of drive that someone like Michael Clark did. So Michael Clark's probably not a big alpha guy either. But Michael Clark, you know, his whole thing was about being a captain and a legend of Australia. So it was all about that. Um, whereas Smith actually seems to me like a fairly normal guy, like just a normal human being um, who be very talented and, and obviously gone on to be a captain. So, yeah, maybe that's what we're seeing is what, what happens, you know, and Kane Williamson's probably another example of that when a normal person becomes captain because quite often it isn't those sorts of people. It is the, the you know, sort of ego-driven person um, that gets those jobs. And, you know, maybe with Smith, Williamson, we just, you know, and, and some, you know, someone, even like someone, some of the other guys as well, someone like Angelo Matthews, we're seeing maybe slightly more normal guys, although Angelo can get pretty angry when he needs to. <laughs> Talking about Smith, I, I know someone that played junior cricket with him and said that the one thing about Smith at a very young age was he was ultra competitive. And I think you see that in the way he plays Test cricket and captains the side or all cricket, he is ultra competitive and that's what his overall driving force is. All his emotions and his everything is about his desire to win. I think that's his central driving force. Yeah, I think that's probably fair. Which is good if you're playing cricket and captaining your country. Um, yeah. All right, now I want to talk about a complex situation. I want to get your opinion on this because I think what's happening with Usman Khawaja now really displays some of the complexities in trying to juggle multiple formats and when Cricket Australia tries to manipulate their 
clay is by getting them to rest, etc. So recently Kawaja was rested from three one days in New Zealand to prepare for the test tour in India. So he missed three one days to, to go to Dubai and get some net practicing. Then he was left out of the first test in India. So effectively, he missed those one days for no reason. And now to make it even more galling for Kawaja, he's been dropped from the Champions Trophy squad in England this year. So he could have played in those one days and perhaps pushed his case for selection. Instead, he was rested. And now he finds himself on the outer of the one day side. I think it sort of displays where Cricket Australia's man management tends to go wrong. Yeah, I mean, those sorts of problems are just going to continue to happen because we have three different formats. We're now understanding that you need to prepare and, and specialise uh, in different ways for all those different formats. It's certainly something that has probably already started to happen before Kawaja. If you realistically, you know, if you're the Sydney Sixers, do you really want to lose your you know, your player like Steve O'Keefe? You know, those sorts of things are going to happen more and more. And when it happens at the international level, it's probably even more galling. But realistically, that that camp in the UAE might have been the difference between, well, Australia probably getting swept in that series and having the potential to win that series. And if you ask Kawaja, what would, what would he say? You know, if you gave him that option, it'd be interesting, you know, to really have a good chat to him about that. It seems to me that all the... All the guys, you know, uh, are all in the Australian team and probably the England team, and most of the and maybe most of the Indian team still are prioritising Test cricket first, um, and that's really where they because that's where you get the respect of the other players. And realistically, a lot of that is to do with ego and you know to do with legacy. And so, I, realistically, if you said to Usman Khawaja, "Are you willing to do that?" And it might have been he might have been part of this as well. That's well, he, he no, he was interviewed, I think, by Gav Joshi, one of the panelists on the podcast, and yep. in that he said he was disappointed that you know he was left out of those ODIs, and then he's not playing in the Test match. So he said to Lehman, "Well, I'm, I've caught, I've just caught myself, but you know, three games of cricket for Australia to for no reason." Yeah, but is that what he's saying afterwards? What did he say before? Is more well, interesting, isn't it? I guess he'd be pretty dirty now, though. Yeah, I don't think they would have rested him. Unless he had, I don't think they would have forced rested him. I think they probably would have said, "This is the option. Uh, are you interested?" But it's going to happen, and you know there are going to be lots of guys that are going to lose games at certain times for their country. The same way that we've seen people given caps um, when they're not particularly as earned as other people. <laughs> Jamie Siddons must look around at some of the people who've gotten caps as like you know C grade. Um, T20 players and think to himself, you know, what did I do wrong? And certain similar things have happened in England. Born 10 years too early. Yeah, but but also even guys like Glenn Chappell in England, and there's been some really good Indian cricketers too who never went on to play uh, for, for their team. And then they must see, you know, India basically send off B-grade um, test teams and um, Sri Lanka have done similar things as well and they've played Zimbabwe at times. And there must be people that are just like, ah, but realistically, that's the world that we've created for ourselves. And we have three individual sports that are all governed by the same people. And so there's... there's and have the same players. Yeah, the same players, the same player pool, governed by the same people, using the same grounds. There's going to be problems for cricket. And, I, I you know, I, there's no obvious solution to these at the moment other than, you know, the thing that I've always wanted is to get rid of probably international T20 and limited overs cricket and just make it, you had the old friendly, but actually just make it about the major tournaments. 
so that the rest of the games are, you know, the, basically the way that football is run, if you will, soccer is run. But that's only because I know how bad the schedule is. And I, I and I know that international T Twenty games outside of tournaments are not massive. Oh, they're a joke. I mean, the last ones Australia played, we had our C grade side there, and it was playing just, at Kadinia Park. Yeah, it was terrible to watch. Actually, look, another interesting case of man management uh, is James Pattinson. I don't know if you've been following the way James Pattinson is making a comeback to cricket, but he's actually doing something really novel, sort of bucking a trend. He's trying to build himself up by bowling. Have you heard of this thing? He's actually bowling a cricket ball to get fit, get cricket fitness. It's an interesting take. He's actually said to Cricket Australia he wants to follow his own program and actually play cricket as a bowler. It's a radical concept. I think they used to do it in the past. Yeah. It's it's worth noting, though, that when... (laughs) It's not as simple as that because... Nothing is. Yeah, well, so I've talked to a couple of key players who played, who basically did nothing but bowl their whole life about this sort of thing. And they would say things like, yeah, but you had to understand, if I'm playing county cricket or professional you know, club cricket in England um, or even shield cricket, I'm probably bowling at about 70% because I am a test match bowler. I know that... If I just if I phone it in, I'm still good enough to play first class cricket. And then occasionally, Viv Richards will come out to bat, or someone will sledge me. You know, the the, the great. I don't know if you've ever heard the story about Joel Garner playing in a game hungover once for Somerset, and some of the opposition fans started calling him a monkey and throwing bananas at him, or some, something along that line. And he completely ripped the heart out of the opposition, demanded the ball, and ended the game, essentially. So, you you know, you get this a lot. I, I talked to Graham Swan about this. <laughs> racism inspired him. Just some yeah. casual racism on English cricket field. Yeah, not, I don't even think that's casual racism. I no, think it's not. Once, once you bring the banana um, into it, it's uh, you're probably trying to make a bigger point there. But, but yeah, and I talked to Graham Swan about this a lot, too about the way that you can basically just pull back into your fourth gear and, and bowl a lot. You, you have to understand, most of the times that people are trying to rest players, it is actually at the top level. And it is because these guys, once you get to the top level, there's no pulling back. Very few international athletes pull back when they're playing test cricket, ODIs, T20s, even you know Big Bash and IPL. There isn't much phoning it in in those competitions, uh, partly because there's a bigger audience watching, but also because of you know, respect and because very few players had the ability at the very top level to just, you know, to bring it down a notch and, and only bring it up when they need to. And so, realistically, the difference of, like, so Graham Tom was saying to me, he bowled this many balls in county cricket and then he bowled this many balls in international cricket. It shouldn't be that much different, whether it's him or James Anderson. And I was, my point is that there is actually a completely difference to Courtney Walsh bowling in county cricket and Courtney Walsh bowling eight tests a year in for the West Indies on the strain in your body. So we actually... We haven't come to terms with all of this sort of stuff yet. But um, what's interesting about the James Pattinson thing for me is that, and you've seen it with um, Steve O'Keefe and, you know, you've seen it with a few other players, KP and, and, and so forth. As players are now trusting their own abilities to come up with training methods and rehab methods and these sorts of things. Um, I mean, we haven't talked much about the fact that Shane Watson's body never worked for the first eight years of his career and then he went off and started looking after himself 
um, and it started working again. Some might argue it didn't work for the last part of his career either. Yeah, but but he didn't get injured as much. That's um, right. Yeah, and which is the most important thing. And part of that was probably he slowed down his bowling. But I, I, you know, the guys taking part taking ownership of these sorts of things, and it's it's a hard thing to do because if you're a if you're someone like Pattinson was basically because of his brother as much as anything, and because of how fast he was, he was probably in pathway systems from the age of thirteen. People tell you where you can go. They tell you what you can eat. They tell you who you can talk to. They tell you what you have to do for training. And you you lose your individual um, nature. And I think with someone like Pattinson, who's probably got to the level now, he's like, everything they've asked me to do has injured my body. My body. I'm going to try bowling or I'm going to try bowling in first-class cricket or whatever, you know, whatever his particular plans are. And, you know, strengthening different parts of his body. And realistically, all this goes back to Dennis Lilly, who was the first person to do this because you had to do it in those days. And I think that's what we will see more of in cricket is people making individual decisions based on their uh, physical well-being, on their coaching well-being. Part of the problem I think we've had with spinners in Australia, and, and you see this a lot in England, is that... This is how you bowl spin bowling. And I think the reason we haven't had a great leg spinner after Shane Warne is because we're trying to make other leg spinners Shane Warne. And he had certain physical um, differences. And if you look at Shane Warne's body compared to Swepson or um, or Zampa, they're completely different builds. Trying to make um, Swepson or Warne or Zampa bowl exactly like Warne, uh, there'll be different physical strains. They might not be able to repeat the action as much. Um, so they have to bowl in different ways. And I think that you see that that's just a microcosm of how cricket coaching has gone over the last 20 years. Everyone had to fit a cookie cutter, uh, you know, mode. And you see some of the, the real innovation has come from Sri Lanka where that's not as big a deal. And, you know, you might see a similar thing from somewhere like Afghanistan as well, where yet again, you have, the, you know, um, people who sort of come in from outside the system at 18, 19. So I think that what Pattinson really shows is that cricketers can take control of their careers and, and back themselves a little bit more. And I think we'll see far more of that. I, th- I think you'll see far more personal coaches in cricket than ever before because it, um, I think that's the, the other thing that people are going to do. So personal coaches, maybe even personal fitness people, I think we've already seen that. I think David Warner's obviously done something similar to that. Um, and I think that that's what the top level of cricket Wayne, will do. Wayne, he's coach Wayne. Yeah, so, you know, even someone like Mitchell Johnson, like, you know, struggling a little bit and going out and finding a life coach and these sorts of things. All these sorts of things are not particularly what a cricket board would, would think of. And yet you we've already seen that, you know, some, sometimes just going back to a, the first cricket coach that you ever trusted is enough for a batsman to to um, basically trust themselves or going to someone like Trent Woodhill or some of these other sort of um, alternative guys. And those sorts of people probably, you know, your first your first coach when you're 16 probably isn't going to be someone who's now coach, you know, assistant batting coach of, of South Africa. But that doesn't mean that they don't have something to teach you and they don't know how to deal with you personally. And I just think that it's, an, it's a team sport with a lot of individual skills brought together and individual um, people. So I, I can see that going forward, that, that might be something that will happen, especially as cricket boards are quite tight. And we've now we've still got teams who travel without permanent spin bowling coaches and wicket-keeping coaches, despite the fact we quite often ask part-timers to do those jobs. I guess on a personal level, as a, a player, you don't want to get to the end of your career and feel like you've made the wrong decisions and you, you want to be true to yourself. So I think Pattinson's a good example of that. It, this last summer yeah and i think he'll be uh, back next summer to destroy england in the ashes all right now jared i've take 
I've taken up a lot of your time, so I'm going to let you go. But I, before I let you go, I want to end this discussion by the way I began it. I, I said you you approach things differently and you seem, you find interesting angles in cricket. So I was going to ask you, which two current international cricketers interest you the most? Uh, well, Mustafa Rahman probably is the most interesting cricketer in the world at the moment because he has the ability to turn Bangladesh from an average cricket team uh, that will scrape the odd win and take them all the way up to the top of limited overs and potentially test cricket. And that's just his talent. But the way he does it, uh, we've never seen a bowler like him before, probably since... How does he do it? Well, we haven't seen a bowler like him since Sidney Barnes, who basically bowls fast spin. And with Sidney Barnes, we hit so long ago, we don't know how much we can rely on, on all that the narrative. But essentially, he bowled fairly quick, Sidney Barnes, and bowled spin bowling. And that's what Roman's doing. So... And so far, he hasn't. You know, he's had this big injury. I don't know if his body can hold up to it. But think about think about the kind of weapon he could be. Um, he bowls 130 between 135 and 145 k's, and he can bowl left arm orthodox spin at that pace. So he can pitch the ball on middle stump and hit the top of off. Um, I don't know if you saw the spell he bowled against Sri Lanka, but he, that's essentially what he was doing, and he bowled it for about five or six overs. That means he can be handy on any pitch in the world. Plus, he swings the ball when he wants to. Plus, he has slow ball um, variety that still no one in cricket can pick. And um, he's a phenomenal athlete. He's also, he's not a gimmick bowler. He's actually quite a clever bowler and quite a clever cricketer. Could end up being some sort of a bowling rounder perhaps later in his career if he kept working on his batting. He, he is just so phenomenally exciting in, in every way. So he's almost like an evolution of cricket. My biggest fear is, well, I've got two fears. One we haven't tested him to see if he's chucking yet, uh, which we have to do. Um, and the other is, even if he's not chucking or even if he is chucking, the amount of um, rotation he's putting on his wrists and his uh, elbow, when when Barnes did it, let's be honest, a fast bowler back in those days was bowling probably about 110, 115 kilometres. Sid Barnes, Sid Barnes has is it Sid Barnes has like a test average of like 18 per wicket or something. I mean, it, I know you're pretty au fait with these older players. His, his record is phenomenal. Yeah, I think he might even be lower than that. But yeah, he's got a quite interesting with Sid Barnes. If you want a stats guru, he averaged 11 against a fairly poor South Africa and about 21, 22 against Australia. As good as he was, he still struggled a little bit more against the absolute best team. But yeah, he was a, look, Sid Barnes was phenomenal and he didn't play that much. He, I, you know, he only played so many tests. He didn't play county cricket because he was always at war with English cricket. So he was playing league cricket. Um, he, he was a complete waste. So hopefully things like that, hopefully we get to see Rahman as much as possible. But he's certainly the one for me because he could evolve what, what bowling is. And we've seen bowlers try cutters before at times, especially in India. But he, it looks like he has he's not bowling cutters. It looks like he's virtually bowling actual spin for, from the amount of revolutions he's getting on the ball. So trying to face a bowler like that, uh, it means he's, he's a danger when the ball's new. He's a danger when the ball's old, and he's, a dang, he's even more of a danger when the ball reverses. The best leg cutter I've ever seen was Kurtley Ambrose's leg cutter. He used to have those big fingers and just rip the ball down the side, and he'd do it at about 150 kilometres an hour. Yeah, but when Ambrose and, and Merv Hughes did it, there was a real drop-off on pace. If, if, you know, they, they were quite good at occasionally getting the ball to nip off the scene. They were two of the best leg cutter bowlers I've ever seen. But when, when, they were, when, when the ball was older and the seam wasn't there and they were trying to do something with the older ball, they basically had to bowl a leg cutter, which means you have to bring back your pace. The thing with Rahman is 
that he doesn't lose a lot of pace. And that's why it's tough. I always thought that Mitchell Johnson, even occasionally when he would, yeah, and he would lose a lot of pace, but he was so quick that he could, he could bowl cutters at 135 Ks. But over the years, he, he actually did that less than when he was young. But this is phenomenal. Um, and so if someone can do that permanently, A, it might inspire other bowlers to do it, uh, which will yeah, almost bring a, a third kind of, um, you'd have swing bowler, seam bowlers, and then you'd have, almost have fast spinners. And so that's phenomenal. And I think the other guy that I'm most interested in is probably Rashid Khan for a couple of reasons. Obviously, he's, Where's he from? Yeah, um, he's Afghanistani. So that's the first thing that's interesting about him. Also, he's the first wave of the Afghanistani cricketers who were born in Afghanistan. So a lot of the other guys that you, that you, you might know if, if you follow Afghanistan cricket are actually basically trained in Pakistan and have come across. Whereas he's born and bred. He's so, you know, the fact that he's this talented shows that they're going to be able, it's not just Pakistan who are making their cricketers talented. They, they literally now have a system that can do it themselves. And also, uh, yet again, there's a slight evolution here. And we saw it with Syed Ajmal, but with Syed Ajmal, obviously he could only do it generally when he's, when he was chucking the ball. Um, whereas, whereas with Rashid Khan, he's able to bowl proper spin, even more so than obviously than Rahman, but at a really high pace. To me, that's the next evolution of spin bowling is the faster that you can actually bowl it and get it to curve, get it to dip and get it to bite. And we've, we've already seen with him that, you know, it, the, the slower sort of spin bowler. So Nathan Lyons at, at the other end, they can be worked on certain days unless the pitches are in their favor in, in general. It's very hard to work someone like Rashid Khan because he's bowling at about 100 kilometers an hour. You're not 100% sure which way he's spinning it, and sometimes it's going straight on. That That's phenomenal. And what he could do for Afghanistan cricket, you know, it could be anything. If he stays healthy and is able to continue to bowl at this point, uh, when the uh, England Lions played against him, they basically had to admit they had no idea which way he was spinning the ball. I think he took 11 wickets in the game against them. And what he could do for a country like Afghanistan, because we talked about it briefly before, Ireland are going to have a dip just because their, their great wave of cricketers have gone. And a bit like the, if you follow Australian basketball, we had that point where we had a bunch of senior basketball players. who, that, who well, When they all disappeared, the Australian basketball team disappeared. But those guys have inspired the next generation of Australian basketball so that we, we will be better. But there was a clear dip. Ireland is going to have that. They're going to have this good generation from about 2006 through to about 2013-14, those guys are gone. Um, and so the next generation uh, might take a few years to go. So if Ireland and Afghanistan get test status, fair chances are Ireland are going to be pretty ordinary. With Rashid Khan, there's a very good chance that Afghanistan won't be ordinary because he's that good and he's the ability to steal them your test match win and also keep that's the great thing about spinners is he can bowl these incredibly long spells um, and, and keep really good teams on, on edge the whole time. Sounds like Australia could be in trouble if they have to face him. Everyone could be in trouble. He looks that good. Now, he might get picked and he might not be able to bowl. You know, he's quite young. He might not be able to bowl spin at this pace without his body falling down as well. But those are the two guys for me that are the most interesting uh, players in world cricket just because of what they could represent. And when we now, Bangladesh are in the next Champions Trophy. They're at the next level now. They've moved up. Um, and, you know, they have the ability to win test matches against good teams. They could beat Australia if we go there. I don't see how Australia could beat them. I, England should have lost 2-0 to them. Uh, Bangladesh shit the bed. Bangladesh should have beaten England 2-0. And I think had, if they played them today, they would. I think just at the time they played them, they didn't quite believe. But they're, they're a phenomenal team, you know, coming up. And there's a, a lot of really good talent coming through and as well. And the, the thing is, when you look at these teams, uh, essentially what they need is uh, one key bowler. 
So Fazal Mahmood, when Pakistan came into cricket, you know, Richard Hadley, the first time New Zealand were consistently a good team was when Hadley was, you know, around. Um, you know, what Murali did for Sri Lanka. So we know that these teams need key bowlers. And in those two guys... Ian Botham for England. What was that? Ian Botham for well, England. But that, but that's when you're at least at that level. You've got guys like Hen- <laughs> Hendrick and um, what's his name? Bob Willis around. That's the thing with, with these uh, associate nations and the teams coming through who are struggling. It's like they don't have the, the backup, if you know what I mean. So if you look at th- the percentage of wickets that Fazal Mahmood and Murali took, it's, you know, and, and Hadley, they took like, in, in, the, in their winning games, they were basically almost three bowlers in one. And that's what you need because you don't have the really good, you know, I mean, until they had um, Chiminda Vass, Sri Lanka never really had a decent seam bowler to back up Murali with. Um, and that's what you need. You need, you know, one key strike bowler. And then in, in test match cricket, you need three really good bowlers around them. And that's what these associate teams don't have. And so, you know, with Rashid Khan, he can really help um, Afghanistan. And with Rahman, you know, they've now got some good bowlers around him. You know, they can go to the next level, which is, you know, hopefully pinching the odd test when they tour and being unbeatable at home. I mean, Bangladesh might be a better team at home at the moment than Sri Lanka is. And that's a, that's a phenomenal thing considering how, you know, how developed Sri Lankan cricket is. Yeah, definitely. Well, there we go. Thank you for those two interesting characters. Uh, we might see Rahman in Bangladesh later this year if Australia go there. And we'll see um, Rashid Khan next time Afghanistan play Australia. So they're very interesting. Jared, thank you so much for your time today on the Australian Cricket Podcast. I thoroughly recommend to all the listeners, to, if they haven't already seen Death of a Gentleman, to see it and to also read your great book, Test Cricket, which we didn't get a chance to talk about. We've run out of time. I really enjoyed your book, Test Cricket. So I think the listeners uh, should, should go ahead and read that one. And uh, thanks for your time on the Australian Cricket Podcast. No problems, mate. Cheers. What a marvellous stroke. He's played no better shot than that in the whole of the series.